Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Stephen Liu, medical oncologist from Georgetown University. In this episode, we are going to discuss an exciting class of cancer drugs, antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs. They're not quite targeted therapy, but not really chemotherapy either. ADCs have been used for years in other cancer types. They're finally getting some traction for the treatment of lung cancer. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll learn what ADCs are and review some of the more promising ADCs for lung cancer. Our guests today are two expert thoracic medical oncologists. First, Dr. Rebecca Heist is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She is the associate director of clinical research at Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center and has globally recognized expertise in drug development and targeted therapy. Becca, thank you for being with us today. Hello, it's nice to be here. And our second guest is Dr. Ben Levy, associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University and the clinical director of medical oncology at the Johns Hopkins Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Sibley. He is an established and well-known clinical investigator who also has experience and expertise in targeted therapy and drug development. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. You know, let's start with the basics, Ben. What is an antibody drug conjugate? Yeah, Stephen, I think you hit the nail on the head. Not quite targeted therapy, not quite chemotherapy, somewhere in between. This is a relatively new class of compounds, at least for lung cancer, with a new model of drug delivery. And I think at a very high level, it's probably important to talk about the three key components of an antibody drug conjugate. There's, of course, the antibody. This is generally a humanized or fully human immunoglobulin, usually IgG1. And then you want that antibody ideally to have a target. So that target usually is a protein that is selectively expressed on tumor cells, and we can talk about some of those targets. The second component is a linker, and that linker connects the antibody to the payload. And I know we'll dive in a little bit deeper on linkers, but at a very high level, there are two types of linkers, cleavable and non-cleavable. And then finally, perhaps most important is the payload or the warhead. Now, this is the the cytotoxic agent that needs to be selectively toxic and potent. So those are the, the three components of an antibody drug conjugate. And Like you mentioned in your introduction, Stephen, these are drugs that are well-known in other tumor types, but we're just learning about them now in lung cancer and very exciting time to leverage these compounds specifically in both non-small cell and small cell lung cancer. When I hear antibody, I think of something with a target, a targeted agent. And as Ben mentioned, this provides specificity for the drug, but antibody drug conjugates, ADCs, they don't really follow the same paradigm as our traditional targeted therapy. Right, Becca? Yeah, that's right, Stephen. So, you know, when I think about targeted therapy in the classical sense, I really think about a specific molecular target that's altered in the cancer, most commonly some change in the DNA or RNA. And that causes constitutive activation of that target to cause cancer growth. And really, we're altering that target by inhibiting it by a selected targeted therapy. And that's what I think of as classically targeted therapy. ADCs, like you said, are different. The target's generally something that's normally expressed on the tumor cell, and we're capitalizing on that target and really hijacking its normal processes to try to identify the tumor cell and deliver the cytotoxic payload more efficiently to the cancers. So in general, the target in the ADC is this target antigen that's expressed preferentially on cancer cells as opposed to normal cells. 
And really, we're kind of using that target to kind of have the ADC internalize and release that payload in order to exert its cytotoxic effect. That's really well said. Looking at the components here, we have the antibody. We also have this cytotoxic payload. Now, that's going to vary between the different ADCs. They're not all the same. So, Ben, what are the important features when we think of the payload component of the ADC? Yeah, very important component, obviously. You know, at a very high level, payloads, they need to be stable. And by stable, meaning remain conjugated to the antibody in their circulation. They need to be able to be conjugated to the linker in general, and they need to be, need to be potent. You know, there are several types of payloads that can be leveraged with ADCs. And most of these either being DNA damaging agents or inhibitors of tubulin polymerization. And some of the most common DNA damaging agents that are used are class of drugs, isomerase inhibitors. We're familiar with this class in lung cancer. An example of a isomerase inhibitor that's been leveraged for ADCs is Deruxtecan. And then microtubule inhibitors include drugs like imtansane, and that's DM1 is an example of that. And that, that is, of course, used with TDM1, which is approved in breast cancer. I think, you know, one of the things that also is important to talk about when talking about the payload is this drug to antibody ratio, or DAR. And, you know, every ADC may have a different DAR and and that drug to body, excuse me, drug to antibody ratio really determines the therapeutic dose delivered to the tumor. You know, a high DAR, obviously you can get increased toxicity. A low DAR may not be as effective. So we have to have that balance when we're thinking about DAR. So I thought I'd just introduce that as well when talking about the payload component of the ADC. A lot of details here that are going to distinguish these drugs from each other. We have the antibody providing the specificity we have the payload, really bringing that cytotoxic effect. Becca, can you talk about the importance of the linker? You know, it seems like I think the most easily overlooked part of an ADC, but it's not an afterthought. It has an important role, right? Yeah, the linker is important. The linker, as Ben said before, is what connects the antibody to the payload. And it needs to have certain key functions. The linker has to provide stability so that the ADC can circulate in the bloodstream and you don't cleave the payload before you are at the target. But then it also has to be cleavable. So when the ADC gets to where it needs to get to, then the payload can be released. There are what are called cleavable and non-cleavable linkers. The cleavable linkers are generally sensitive to something physiologic in the environment. pH, for example, it might be cleaved at low acidic environments or a protease or glutathione levels. Non-cleavable linkers form non-reducible bonds with the antibody, and you really depend on the ADC being degraded in the lysosome once it's internalized in the cell for the payload to be released. And so depending on whether a linker is cleavable or non-cleavable linker, that gives you different properties of where exactly the payload's getting released and what happens subsequently. Yeah, that's a critical piece there. I mean, whole companies, whole programs are built on this proprietary linker technology, so definitely an equally important part of an antibody drug conjugate. You know, we're talking about delivery of these drugs in patients with lung cancer. Ben, quick question. Do we know anything about CNS penetration with ADCs? This is a a difficult question, but yet a good one and a clinically relevant one. You know, I think we only have a nascent understanding clinically, at least at least based on the evidence so far, of how well these ADCs cross the blood-brain barrier. I still think we're in the investigation phase of this question. I mean, theoretically, you know, some would say that these compounds may be too large to cross the blood-brain barrier. If you truly believe that there's a blood-brain barrier, this fortress or barrier, 
that forbodes entry of compounds. Now, you know, some would say that with brain metastases, you disrupt this blood-brain barrier so that molecules, small or large, may get in. Now, some, at least looking at the breast cancer literature, both preclinical and clinical, it does look like these drugs can cross the blood-brain barrier. I still think we're waiting for answers for this in lung cancer. I think anecdotally, we've been fortunate to be a part of some of the studies looking at some ADCs, specific ADCs in lung cancer. And we have seen both responses and disease stability in the brain when the delivery of the agents. And importantly, these trials have allowed patients with CNS disease, controlled CNS disease, uh, to be in the studies because we need this question answered. So I hope to have a different answer for you, a more defined answer in the next six to 12 months. Well, we're learning a lot. As you mentioned, there's trials that are ongoing now that are enrolling very quickly. And the reason we're talking about this is that we have seen early efficacy. We'll go over that in a moment, but Becca, jumping ahead, do we know anything about acquired resistance to ADCs? So it's a really a great question. And of course, with all therapies and targeted therapies and the ADC therapies, at some point, we think that even among people who respond well, that there'll be resistance. And you know, of course, understanding why that resistance happens is so important. You know, theoretically, at least there are multiple ways that can become resistant to an ADC. There can be impaired binding of that ADC that the target via a multitude of different ways. There might be downregulation of the target off the cell membrane. There can be mutations in the antigen that it's expressed that affects the way the target gets recognized. Then there can be defects in how once the target is bound, that complex gets internalized and changes in the way that the degradation can occur. And then, of course, changes in drug efflux transporters. So there are a variety of ways in which ADC resistance and resistance to specific ADCs can develop. So one interesting example of this in triple negative breast cancer has been described recently where acquired resistance to an ADC, Sazituzumab, and the, this group of investigators led by Leif Ellison described resistance that developed after initial response to this drug. And there were acquired resistance mutations, both in the target, the trope 2, which is the antigen that's expressed that the ADC attaches to, as well as the payload. So really interesting in terms of the ways and the variety of ways that resistance can develop to this class of drugs. I think we're going to benefit from our colleagues in the breast cancer world sort of paving the roads for us. They've been using antibody drug conjugates for breast cancer for many years. They're just coming into their own for lung cancer. So let's hear a little bit about some of the early data. One of the earlier drugs that we've used in non-small cell lung cancer has been trastuzumab and tansine. Ben, can you give us a brief overview of some of those data? Sure. You hit the nail on the head with benefiting from the breast cancer world with TDM1, looking at it in lung cancer. This was one of the first antibody drug conjugates evaluated and investigated in lung cancer. This is an antibody drug conjugate targeting HER2. So it's an anti-HER2 monoclonal antibody, trastuzumab, conjugated to the microtubule inhibitor, mtansime or DM1. And this was a phase two basket trial evaluating single agent drug, specifically in HER2 mutated non-small cell lung cancer. It was a small study. It was 18 patients. I think importantly, the median number of prior systemic therapies was two in this trial. So the average line of therapy here is three when giving this drug. And the response rate was north of 40%. It was 44%. The median PFS was five months. You know, I think we'll see this trend over and over again with some of these antibody drug conjugates with this statement, but the immunohistochemistry, the IHC or the HER2 IHC, didn't seem to predict response to this drug, which, you know, we can talk about certainly as 
one would think it would, but it didn't in this case. There was certainly a cohort of patients in this trial that were also different HER2 alterations with HER2 over amplification. But this drug, you know, despite this benefit, is not FDA approved in lung cancer, but it's certainly in the NCCN. We have had an opportunity to use this compound and our patients off-label and seen some reasonable responses. So it was a, a good start to the story of, for ADCs and lung cancer. But I think you make an important distinction there, Ben. We're not talking about HER2 positive by IHC. We're talking about HER2 mutant as the biomarker, which may be a little counterintuitive for antibody drug conjugates. And I think it's similar with another ADC, a more recent one that's shown some activity in HER2 mutant lung cancer. And I'm going to ask Becca to talk about trastuzumab deruxtecan. So a really interesting, another antibody quite similar. So trastuzumab deruxtecan or TDXD combines the antibody to HER2 via a cleavable linker to, and here the cytotoxic payload is deruxtecan, which is a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. And in lung cancer, results have been reported from the Destiny Lung01 study with this drug. So patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer were enrolled you could actually go in two different cohorts. One was based on HER2 overexpression and another based on HER2 mutations. And in the cohort with HER2 mutations, that cohort had about 91 patients. There was an overall response rate of 55% and a median PFS of 8.2 months. So that's really remarkable when you think about HER2 mutations in lung cancer and the responses that we are seeing in general for I'm trying to direct therapy against that specific mutation has generally not been as high as that. You know, interestingly with this drug, the most common AEs included some GI and hematologic effects. The more common grade three or higher AEs were neutropenia and anemia. And there are these ILD events which seem to occur with this drug, which is something to watch out for. And we know with this, with the trastuzumab-terrestrican drug, ILD can occur and it's something that we really need to be cautious about, particularly in our patients with lung cancer. And I think as Ben was alluding to, in the data that's been reported thus far, it's really the HER2 mutated patients where we're seeing much of this benefit. And there's some benefit that we see also in the HER2 overexpressing, but not as much. The response rates have not been as high. So, so interesting when you think about um, how this ADC is working and the different effects it's having. Yeah, maybe not something I would have predicted up front, but a very important distinction there. And as you mentioned, impressive response rates, 55%, you know, for those not treating patients for reference, you know, with platinum doublet chemotherapy, our long-term standard, our response rates in the 20, 30% range. So 55%, I think quite remarkable. Let's move on to a, a different target. Another ADC we've seen data in over the past year is patritimab deruxtecan. Ben, same last name as trastuzumab deruxtecan. Any relation there? Yeah, no, a little bit different target here, importantly. Yes, same sort of concept, same type of antibody with linker, but a different a target to the antibody. So this is an antibody drug conjugate that targets HER3 protein rather than HER2. And we, you know, the data we have on this was presented at ASCO 2021, looking at single agent HER3DX or protrudermab drug TCAN at a dose of 5.6 mg per keg. And Looking at 57 patients, all EGFR mutant lung cancer patients who had received prior EGFR TKI, and most of them had received osimertinib, as well as chemotherapy. See, these are highly pretreated groups of patients. And the median line of prior therapy, again, I think this is important, was four. So you're giving this drug at an average line of you know, fifth line here. And that's important when we see response rates that we may not be comfortable with in the first line, but certainly as 
tumors evolve and develop heterogeneity, they're difficult, more difficult to treat as we, we layer in more lines of therapy. So in, in this EGFR mutant lung cancer patient population, small numbers, 57 patients, again, all receiving post-EGFR, all have received EGFR TKI, all had received chemotherapy, response rate close to 40%, 39%, and the median PFS surprisingly at 8.2 months, pretty incredible. You know, similar, this theme woven in here about IHC and did HER3 overexpression or IHC make a difference, and it didn't seem to predict response to this drug. And I think we're still looking for the right biomarker for some of these ADCs, but clearly this drug is active in EGFR mutant lung cancer. It's active independent of, of HER3 expression. It's active independent of the mechanisms of EGFR-TKI resistance that were identified in the study. And we look at toxicities of this compound, pretty well-tolerated drug. We saw, you know, clearly some signals with thrombocytopenia and neutropenia and fatigue as well as anemia. You know, once again, this, we can talk about this interstitial lung disease, AE, that we are seeing across the board. We did see that fortunately most of these in the study were grade one or grade two, but certainly something that we need to be mindful of. I'm excited about this drug. I think to elicit a response rate of close to 40% and highly pre-treated group of patients is pretty remarkable and reasonably well-tolerated. So I look forward to seeing where this drug heads. We certainly need more responses post-OC for GFRM lung cancer. So definitely an unmet need there. I want to go back though, Becky, you mentioned early on different target trope two, and this is something that we're seeing being exploited a lot in breast cancer, you know, generating a lot of interest. And you mentioned sasituzumab gavidikin, an ADC that targets trope two. I know that you were involved in the early development of this drug. Can you teach us a little about that target and your own experience with it? Yes. Uh, trope 2 is overexpressed on many epithelial cancers, and trope 2 overexpression has been linked with tumor growth and cell migration, and really also with poor survival in solid tumors. Uh, Sasituzumab agovidecan is a ADC uh, that targets trope 2, and it's conjugated to the payload SN38, which is the active metabolite of irinotecan, which a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor that we're all quite familiar with. And as you know, sasituzumab is approved now for triple negative breast cancer that's been previously treated with at least two prior systemic therapies. And in lung cancer, we also do have experience with this drug. There was early studies with sasituzumab in patients with actually both non-small cell and small cell lung cancer. Among the non-small cell lung cancer patients who were treated with sasituzumab, there were about 50 or four patients. This was a heavily pretreated population and the overall response rate was about 17% with a median PFS of about a little bit over five months. And in small cell, among about 50 patients, there was a response rate of about 14%. And so, you know, in patients who are heavily pretreated, they, these were actually quite interesting response rates. And again, going back to the theme of does IHC really correlate with response? You know, in the studies in lung cancer done so far, trope to IHC levels really didn't seem to correlate with response. So I'm still looking for what really is the right biomarker here in terms of who might respond versus not. Yeah, similar to what they saw in, in breast cancer, trope 2 is an interesting target, but there's another trope 2 ADC beyond sasituzumab gavidecan, right, Ben? Yeah, we've got datapotamab deruxican or deruxican, which is an antibody drug conjugate again against trope 2, as you mentioned, different payload than the sasituzumab gavidecan study, excuse me, compound with the deruxican being the payload. This compound has been presented in several meetings, most recently in ASCO 2021. 
This was evaluated in 180 patients who were non-small cell lung cancer, both adenocarcinoma and squamous cell. And again, unselected for trope 2 expression and whether trope 2 expression predicts efficacy of the drugs. I think as Becca mentioned, I don't think we're seeing that. So we're still in search for the biomarker for these types of compounds. So 180 patients, there were three separate cohorts, a four mg per kg cohort, a six mg per kg cohort, and an eight mg per kg cohort. And what we saw across the cohorts was a response rate of anywhere from 20 to 25% across the dose levels and a PFS that ranged anywhere from four to seven months. Again, these patients were, were highly pretreated. So it's not the 40% we saw with pertrudumab druxtecan and the EGFR mutant lung cancer patients, but certainly eliciting responses at, at later lines of therapy is meaningful in my mind. There were toxicities that were seen with this compound, certainly one that maybe is on the radar a little different than other ADCs is stomatitis. We need to be mindful of that. It was also noted to be fatigue and some GI toxicities and interstitial lung disease. Again, most are grade one or grade two, but certainly something that needs to be a toxicity that we're all familiar with, with immunotherapy that we need to be mindful of here when we start to continually develop these drugs and look at them in in earlier lines of therapy. Now, Ben, I know you were involved in some of those trials, and I just sort of want to openly acknowledge that these names are a little unwieldy. Um, (laughs) And I think that's why most of them have these sort of abbreviations we use. I'll mention that one of our breast cancer colleagues, Dr. Rebecca Shatsky, refers to this drug lovingly as Dato Potato, which is what I call it now. So we've heard about Dato Potato. Becca, let's shift targets here. I know that outside of ADCs, you've done a lot of pioneering work on targeting MET in non-small cell lung cancer, very important target. Are there ADCs for MET? Yeah, uh, there are ADCs for MET. One example, for example, is the tongue twister telesotuzumab bedotine, which I call teleso-V for ease. And, you know, so this is an ADC to MET. It's been um, studied in a variety of different settings. And here, the ADC, it targets MET as the antigen. It's conjugated to the cytotoxic payload MMAEE, which is a tubulin inhibitor. And uh, data has been presented at multiple different settings. But for example, at World Lung this past year, Camage and colleagues uh, reported on the single agent activity of this drug in a study where it was looked at in multiple different types of lung cancer. There was a squamous cohort. There was a non-squamous cohort that was uh, EGFR wild type as well as EGFR mutated and also looked at with various levels of MET expression. So high MET expression and intermediate MET expression. And here I would say this is a little different from some of the other things we've talked about where IHC or expression level didn't seem to really correlate with response in this particular study, in the EGFR wild type non-squamous patients, the overall response rate was 35% in that population, but in the MET high subgroup, the response rate was 54%, well, whereas in the intermediate, the response was 25%. And then in the non-squamous EGFR mutation positive group, uh, the response rate was 13%. So an interesting signal there where maybe here with this particular ADC, the level of MET expression, we did see some differential response rates, depending on whether it was high or intermediate. So kind of a different and interesting finding compared to some of the other ADCs we've talked about. And certainly there are also other antibodies against MET as well as other ADCs against MET that are in development as well. These are exciting data. We're talking about sort of a new class of drugs that sort of gives patients an exciting new option. And we're, we're looking at different combinations. I think it's great to have so many ADCs, so many options out here. 
but they don't always all work out. Ben, just to provide some balance to the episode here, can you recap our collective experience with Ravalpatuzumab tesserine? Ravalpatuzumab tesserine, which I call Rova Tomata, is <laughs> Rova T, is a antibody drug conjugate that targets delta-like ligand 3. Now, DLL3 is highly expressed on neuroendocrine carcinomas, including small cell, of course. So it did make a lot of sense to leverage and investigate this compound in small cell lung cancer. And as you mentioned, Stephen, I think there was a lot of excitement from the phase one experience with this drug. It looked encouraging. There were 70 patients previously treated small cell lung cancer, which 60 were valuable for response and received single agent drug. The response rate was 18%. Another 50% had stable disease. The duration of response was five to six months. Toxicity you know, wasn't prohibitive. It was 12% grade three, four thrombocytopenia. There were some cirrhosal effusions noted in 11% of patients. So I think this set the stage. It was an unmet need, and this was a novel compound, and we were you know, desperate to look for good drugs for small cell lung cancer. Unfortunately, and we had a phase two Trinity study, a single arm study looking at Rovat monotherapy in small cell lung cancer, who had received at least two lines of therapy. It was a large study, 300 and close to 340 patients. Unfortunately, the response rate was only 12% in this study, and 54% of patients developed a grade three treatment emergent adverse event with 10% developing fatal grade five treatment emergent adverse events. And then just to kind of solidify this drug off the cliff for lung cancer, you know, we had two phase three studies that evaluated Rovat versus a comparator control arm. That one of them was a two-to-one randomization of Rovat versus Topotecan for small cell lung cancer in the second line. Study was stopped with survival actually favoring the control arm. And so that also noted toxicity with Rovat that was consistent from the phase two data. And then a phase three study that randomized patients with small cell lung cancer who completed platinum etoposide to maintenance Rovat versus placebo, again, stopped due to, again, lack of benefit. And so, you know, unfortunately, this drug didn't pan out. would like to have seen it given, you know, we're all looking hard for good drugs in small cell, but this drug, I don't think has a near future, maybe a re- recalibration with other combinations or lower doses, but certainly not now. It's not in the calculus for small cell lung cancer patients. Yeah, I agree. They have stopped development of Rovat and certainly a cautionary tale. So ADCs, you know, subject to failure as well. There are so many ADCs. We can't possibly cover them all. I'll, I'll direct listeners to a review article my colleague, Dr. Joshua Royce, published for a nice summary of things. But one last one that I do want to note is tusimidumab revtansine. Becca, can you tell us about this drug? Yeah, sure. So tusimidumab is an ADC that targets CCAMP and CCAMP, CCAMP5, I should say. So CCAMP5 is overexpressed on multiple tumor types, including non-small cell lung cancer. And this particular ADC conjugates CCAM5 to DM4, which is a tubulin inhibitor. And we've seen some results from a study that looked at tuzumidumab in non-squamous lung cancer. And here, again, there was restriction based on CCAM5 expression with a high expressing cohort and a moderate expressing cohort. And the response rate in the high expressors are about 64 patients in that cohort was 20% with another 44% having stable disease. And in moderate expressors, there are about 24 patients treated and a response rate of 7%, with another 54% having stable disease. The most common AEs that they saw, uh, treatment emergent AEs included anemia, some corneal AEs, which is a bit of a class function with this tubulin inhibitors, asthenia, and peripheral neuropathy. If this drug is going to be studied more, there's a phase three that will be comparing 
tuzumumab to docetaxel in patients with non-squamous lung cancer who have high levels of CKM5 expression. So we'll be interested to see what those results show. Becca, I want to talk about this one a little more. You mentioned tuzumumab is being studied in tumors that express CKM, so that's C-E-A-C-A-M, CKM5 protein. And to me, you know, simplistically from an, for an antibody-based therapy, it makes sense that you would want a tumor that expresses the protein, the ligand for that antibody. So that makes a lot of sense. But we just talked about a whole slew of ADCs that are not using protein expression to guide treatment, not using that as selection criteria. And in fact, cases where it's been studied and it's not as good as other biomarkers, that doesn't make sense to me. Can you explain that a little to me? I wish I could. <laughs> I think this speaks to how much we still need to know about the biology here and how things are actually working, because exactly as you said, we saw that with, for example, trisuzumab duroxican, the response rates are high for HER2 mutation. And, you know, there are responses, but they're not at the level that we see for HER2 mutation and the HER2 overexpressing. Whereas with the MET-ADC we talked about, there was higher expression with the high level of MET-expression. So, you know, I think we still don't understand a lot about the biology. There's been some preclinical work to uh, suggest that the activating HER2 mutations enhance receptor internalization and uptake of the HER2 receptor antibody drug conjugate complex. And maybe that's why that there's that high response rate seen. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, there's still a lot that we don't know and that we need to learn about how exactly these ADCs work. And I would love to hear Ben's thoughts or your thoughts too on, you know, where are we going here and what's the underlying biology? Yeah, I've heard also that sort of, you know, with HER2 mutant, you have more recycling of the receptor. And so what you're capturing with, you know, an immunohistochemistry on a single slice biopsy is just one moment in time, but the receptor is a living sort of part of it and it's being recycled faster. And that's why the drug's being internalized quicker. And it's hard to capture using sort of biopsies that, that don't necessarily reflect that. But I, I like your explanation a little better that we don't totally know yet. And I think that we still have a lot to learn and I'm looking forward to, to learning more about that. I also want to touch before we close here on another theme you mentioned, the two of you mentioned a couple times, you know, some of these drugs do have notable toxicity and it's not so much, you know, a lot of differences between antibody drug conjugates and our classical targeted TKIs, which generally we think are, are very well tolerated. These drugs are given intravenously they do have, you know, some of them do have notable toxicities. And one that you both mentioned a few times was pneumonitis, ILD, interstitial lung disease. Ben, is this a class effect with ADCs? Uh, again, I think we're just at the ground floor with this, trying to understand. Yes, we have seen, as Beck and I both mentioned, ILD with many of these drugs. And maybe with further development of others, we won't see them with others. But clearly, some of the early data would suggest that many of these ADCs can cause ILD, and it's something that needs to be on our radar. I mean, looking at some of this data that both Beck and I presented, and the ILD, the pneumonitis can be up to 15% of patients. I think that's the bad news. The good news is that at least what we're seeing so far is that most of these are grade one or two. There are some grade threes. I think also the good news is we've come accustomed to managing ILD with the advent and the clinical development and implementation of IO in our clinics. And even some targeted therapies can do this. So we're coming comfortable partnering with our pulmonologists, comfortable identifying this on scan, talking to our radiologists. You know, we've seen this with datapotamab deruxtecan. We've seen this with trastuzumab deruxtecan. We've seen it with some of the other agents as well. You know, despite that, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done and why this happens and how this happens. 
Is it a different biological process versus what's happening with patients receiving immunotherapy? And then perhaps most important, how to best mitigate it? What are the strategies that we need to institute to make sure that we can get our patients through these, through the side effect, which as all of us know, can be debilitating if it's grade three or four and can pretty much take the drug off the table, you know, very rarely can be irreversible. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And fortunately, I think there's some, you know, some very smart folks that are looking into this, trying to understand this, but certainly one that we need to keep on our radar as we begin to look at these drugs further in clinical trials, and even some of these that may get FDA approval for lung cancer in the next six to 12 months. I think it, you know, it's important to keep it front of mind and early recognition, knowing that these can occur so we can recognize them and intervene early. I think that's a good point there. Another thing that I've noticed in some of the data you've, you both have presented is that these are often very heavily pretreated patients. You know, with data largely generated in the salvage setting, Becca, let me ask you to predict the future here. Are we going to see these moving into earlier lines? I think it's entirely possible. You know, certainly if there's a biomarker that really selects for patients with high response, uh, we may be seeing this moving into the first line. And there are also multiple clinical trials actually looking at some of these ADCs and trying to move them into some sort of first-line combination. For example, replacing one of the chemotherapy drugs, for example, in a first-line chemo IO strategy. So there are ongoing studies with some of the TRIP2 ADCs actually looking at strategies like that as well. So, you know, the data are forthcoming. This will be looked at, and it's very possible that some of these ADCs may get moved up into the first line, depending on what those studies show. Now, Ben, I know you're involved in some of those combination studies, but without disclosing anything, what do you think is the future of ADCs in lung cancer? Yeah, I think one of the first questions that we need to answer, an important clinical question is can this, some of these ADCs outperform docetaxel in the second line? So I don't want to forget that there are publicly known trials ongoing comparing ADC second line to docetaxel. As much as we talk about toxicities with ADCs, I think it's a much better patient journey on an ADC than it is with docetaxel. So I think we'll have an answer there in the second line, you know, hopefully soon where we'll be able to move docetaxel and put it back on the shelf appropriately. But I do, I agree with Becca. I think that there are a lot of first-line combination studies that look promising. As Becca mentioned, I think appropriate biomarker selection is going to be critical. I also think that dose and schedule of these drugs in first-line, if we're going to continue them as maintenance, is also going to be important so that we can, you know, again, we're talking about beating up tumors without beating up patients. And I think it's really important to look at quality of life and toxicities. But I do. There's a lot of novel combinations out there, both for patients with and without driver mutations with high PDL1 and low PDL1. I think we'll have to see, but I think more immediately will be this second line head to head comparison with the dose of which should be interesting. Well, this is a whirlwind overview. Thank you both. I'm looking forward to seeing more of these drugs. But, you know, in the last couple of minutes here, before we part ways, you know, while I've got the two of you on, I think our listeners would love to get to know the two of you a bit better. We don't see each other in person these days. So Becca, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up, where you did your training, why you chose to focus on lung cancer? Yeah, I grew up in Long Island, New York, and people tell me that since then I've lost my Long Island accent, but I'm not entirely sure about that. It comes out, especially when I'm tired. And then I came to Boston actually for college and med school and did my training at the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center. And, you know, I think uh, lung cancer for me 
you know, back when I was a fellow, it was actually long enough ago that uh, we didn't have all of these drugs. We didn't have even really most of the treated drugs when I was doing fellowship. But I really, really liked the patients and I liked the patient care and I liked the conversations we were having and I liked taking care of the patients and the issues they had as their lung cancer developed. So that was what really drew me into lung cancer. And then serendipitously, since then, there's been this explosion of drug development in lung cancer, which has made this field incredibly exciting to be in, which has been very, very gratifying as well. Yeah, it's really well said. I, I also think that the you know lung cancer physician specialists, I know I'm biased, but I really think they're just so warm and welcoming. And I don't know if it's just that you have to do that when you're dealing with such a, a tragic and difficult disease, but certainly there's been an explosion of progress. Ben, let me turn to you. Same question. You know, tell us how you got here. People think of you as this cosmopolitan city guy, but <laughs> I know for a fact that that was not your upbringing, right? Yeah, no, surprising to most people, despite being in New York City for 10 years and now living in DC for four, I grew up in South Georgia and, you know, well below the perimeter of Atlanta, which is an important distinction. My town is uh, halfway in Alabama and halfway in Georgia on the Chattahoochee River. And surprisingly, my folks still live there, but I knew one thing I wanted to get out. So I ended up doing med school at the University of Georgia, but then went on to do residency up the East Coast, did my residency at Georgetown. And that's where I developed a real liking to the patients. Had a chance to rotate through Lombardi, where you practiced even a wonderful place and got to, that was my first touch point for cancer patients. And then did my fellowship at Weill Cornell in New York City. And, you know, I, I didn't intend to do lung cancer, but as you mentioned, Stephen, I, I I started to gravitate towards many of the physicians who were practicing lung cancer. It was such a warm group that resonated with me. And, you know, the running joke was, you know, the, the community of lung cancer oncologists was great, but the real reason I went into lung cancer was because it's easy. As Becca mentioned, when we started, there were three drugs. And, you know, thankfully, I think we, we've come a long way. The real answer is that it really was the precision medicine story that was beginning to evolve when I finished fellowship, you know, the iPass data got published in 2009, and that was my last year of fellowship. So this is really where I started to develop an interest. We had a great community of lung cancer oncologists, and we had this precision medicine story, chapter one of a novel that's still being written. That was so fascinating to me. So glad, glad that I chose it. And it's a pleasure still to remain in it. Look, I, I want to thank both of you for being so generous with your time today. I know we're a little over for helping educate us on this emerging topic and certainly for all the work you're doing, not just with ADCs, but in the treatment of lung cancer for us and for our patients. So Becca, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And Ben, thank you again for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It was a wonderful experience. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 